Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Inside Thrill Radio, hosted by author Jenny Milchman. Tonight, Jenny has a couple of very special guests, which will be authors Kate White and Liv Constantine, which actually makes up a sister combo of Lynn and Valerie Constantine. So kind of put the two together and you get Liv and talking about their latest book, um, which is out here on um, October 17th. We want to remind you all, of course, that all of our shows here are brought to you by Kensington Books, so please make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information on their books and everything that they got going on. The latest Suspense Magazine um, is out, came out on Halloween. Our Best of Issue is shaping up. We have notified all the authors. Our current subscribe award winner for the best book of 2017 is all excited and ready to go. Maybe if you're looking at Twitter accounts, you might see those out there. But if you don't have a copy of the magazine and you would like one, you can just email editor at suspensemagazine.com. We'll get one out to you. And December 15th, around that time, is when our best of will come out. So right in time for the holidays to fill some stockings. But now, without any further ado, I want to turn it over to the host of the show tonight, Jenny Milchman. Jenny, take it away. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Inside Thrill Radio a joint production between the International Thriller Writers and Suspense Magazine. I am so excited to have three guests who happen to have written books that gripped me this year on Inside Thrill tonight. I don't even remember what we named the show. I almost couldn't come up with a name for it because I kept going back to three books I really liked or three authors I really enjoy now. But I will introduce them, and then you all will be able to tweet at me and Facebook me and email, as you always do, and let us know what you think the show should be called. We'll come up with a good name for it, and I will do a giveaway of each author's latest book. So tonight we have on Kate White, who is the former editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan Magazine and the New York Times bestselling author of both the series, which I find fascinating, as well as five standalone novels. Her series features Bailey Wiggins, who is a journalist turned sleuth. And, you know, there are some great series out there with journalists turned sleuth. I feel like there may not be any others featuring a female journalist, or at least that's my experience in this thriller world. And so I'm always interested when I get a new Bailey Wiggins and... The one that is out now, even if it kills her, deals with some really deep themes of friendship and loss and what we owe to the people in our lives. And interestingly enough, my other two guests, whom I will call the sisters Constantine, Lynn (laughs) and Val, who are the authors of The Last Mrs. Parrish, also deal with similar themes of what we owe to the people in our lives and what we as women do in our relationships. So again, ladies, I am thrilled to have you on. I don't know if my intros could possibly have done justice. I would love, Kate, for you to say a little more about yourself and tell us about the latest Bailey Wagons, even if it kills her. Oh, thanks so much, Jay. Uh, first, I just have to say, I'm so excited to be on with Lynn and Val. Their book has just gotten so much incredible buzz this year, so it's such an honor. Oh, I thank you. Uh, this is my seventh Bailey Wagons, and somehow I stupidly let a number of years go by without doing another one because I got caught up in standalone. But it was, it was fun to get back to it because I, I really enjoyed working on the character. And I advanced it two years because of being away for five years. Usually with, with Bailey, 
each situation occurs just a couple months after the last one. So I, I left ahead two years. So it was interesting to kind of think about how she might have grown from 33 to 36. Um, well, I guess that's three years. So it's like she was, she was 33 and a half. And so that was interesting to think about how has she changed in the, in these last couple of years and grown up because that's a pivotal time for, for women in their 30s. You, you do mature then. I mean, the interesting thing I think about a series, and I want to circle back to this, but since you opened with a case, is, is time exactly as you're saying. And what does the timeline do? You know, events that are taking place in the series, how are they relative to other events that take place? And yeah, the aging of the, of the character really feels like a young woman to me. I don't mean an immature woman. I mean, she feels like a young, vital, uh, in the prime kind of character to me. And I haven't really, I, I, I mean, I think it's interesting. This is true. This is how I feel as the Reacher series, too. So I think it'll be interesting. You said there are seven now as they go on. What happens to kind of her spirit and her verve? Yes, because certainly life can sometimes knock that out of you. But yeah. what, what was interesting for me, too, with this is because in this case, Bailey's approached by a college friend of hers whose two siblings and parents were murdered the sophomore year in college, and DNA evidence has, has shown that the guy who did it, who was convicted, didn't really do it. So she wants Bailey's help in trying to learn more about what really happened because the police, as so often does happen in these cases, they're dragging their heels because even with an exoneration, they don't want to have to reopen it and all that. Right. So it was interesting to kind of also look at Bailey back when she was in college. You know, not that there's too many, there's not really any flashbacks, but just she has to recognize how she's changed because she wasn't a very good friend to her her friend Jillian because it was a little bit of an overwhelming experience for her to know how to comfort someone who's had that kind of loss. So she gets to try to make amends with this book. In this right. Book. So yeah. her friend, so her friend, Jillian's like completely devastated. Bailey at the time didn't do what she thought she should have done. And the novel really deals with kind of regret and remorse and making and redemption, um, which I think is an interesting thing in a serious character where there's been a gap because, you know, you sort of have that time for reflection. Yeah, and to look at it from... Uh, both her thinking back about herself at 20 and now right. at 36 and how she can make amends. And often we don't get the chance for that in life. Right. So true. Well, so you already mentioned uh, Lennon Val's book, that Lennon Val writers live Constantine. And it's interesting, I think, also with this issue of um, reflection and, and what we do with our lives. I think I'm going to certainly let... Lynn and Val described the last Mrs. Parrish, which, as Kate Apley noted, is, is getting a lot of buzz. It's their debut novel, Writing Together. Um, and I'd like them to do the introduction, but I'm, I'm feeling some tendrils of connection because I think that issue of whether we've done the right thing certainly surfaces in the last Mrs. Parrish as well. So, Lynn or Val, either of you, tell us a little bit about the novel. One of you tell a little bit about the novel, and then the next one tell how you came to write it together. Okay, um, this is Lynn, and I'll start, and also we want to thank you for being here 
And Kate, we're thrilled to be here with you as well and are equally uh, honored to be on the same show with you. So The Last Mrs. Parrish um, is a story about, it's a story of two women really, um, but it primarily focuses in the beginning on Amber, who is a woman with a lot of regrets, who feels she's been given a raw deal in life and moves to this ultra-rich town with the intent of changing her luck by marrying someone. And he just so happens to already be married, but that doesn't matter to her. <laughs> so Amber has her own code of ethics, and she feels very much the hero or heroine of her own story, doesn't think that there's anything wrong with what she's doing. And so you spend the first part of the book in her mind really seeing exactly how she justifies what to most people would be horrible actions, but to her makes complete sense. Um, and so... You know, the book begins there, and without giving any spoilers, the second part you, you get to see from Daphne, the wife's perspective, and then part three alternates between the two of them. So it was a lot of fun to write, and I'll turn it over to Valerie to talk about how we started that. Well, hello, everybody. Yeah. This is Valerie. And again, thank you, Jenny. Hello, Kate. Great to be on hello. the show with you. Uh, we, we talked about this. We, we had a lot of fun writing the book, as Lynn said. And we talked about uh, this this whole phenomenon of the trophy wife, the, the woman who comes in that we've seen in movies, we've read in books, we've seen in real life. Uh, a woman who sets her cap for somebody who belongs to some who's already married, belongs to somebody else, and just goes goes for it. And so we started talking about what it might look like with a different outcome than the one that is usual. Uh, and so talked about a lot of what if. Well, what if this happened? And what if what if this didn't happen? And, it, and this happened instead. Uh, and so, again, without giving any spoilers, that's where we went. We, we took it down different paths. Um, but how did the two of you – I mean, that's wonderful, and I agree. Uh, the last is Paris – Twists and turns, I mean, you're both, you're all three, I think, very well-known or will come to be well-known in the Sisters Constantine cases for that. <laughs> but go back a step too, um, because I know this interests people, and I see it all over the web. You know, you live by three, you divided by three states, but you wrote together. How did the decision to write it together, and how did the process unfold? Okay, so we, we wrote it, we wrote a long, a book together a long time ago when we did live in the same town, and at that point we would write chapters and get together weekly when we were working full time and go over them. But in this case, with living far apart, we talk every single day, and we, what we do is we, before the day begins, we both know essentially what scenes we're going to be writing, and it doesn't even mean it's going to be written consecutively, or, you know, we don't use an outline. We know who the characters are, and we know broad, broad plot, and we know the beginning and we know the end. So then Valerie will say, all right, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z today, and I'll say, okay, I'm going to do ABC. We, we write, and then we email each other the chapters, and then we speak probably around 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon after reading them. And then after we go through and comment on each other's, and sometimes, you know, I'll get an email from Valerie, and there'll be a completely new character that we didn't even discuss. It's just emerged. I'll say, oh, who, you know, who's this? And she'll say, well, that's, you know, so-and-so. And, came walking in. Right. <laughs> and I opened the door. Um, or 
sometimes I'll, she'll get something from me and something horrible will have happened that we never said to one of the characters that we didn't discuss. And we give each other the freedom to really write organically, knowing that we're, we're writing in the beginning and first draft, that things can change and it's not an issue. If we, even if we, if what we write conflicts with each other, we'll discuss it, we'll decide which makes more sense, and then the other will modify her chapter. So that's pretty much how, you know, how it goes the first, I guess, what, six months or so when we're doing that first draft. And and then also the other thing that will happen is I'll be writing something, and I really don't love doing descriptions of places, and Val's great at that. So I'll just type in that there is someone's house, and I'll put in all caps, put description here, and I'll send it to Val, mm-hmm. and she'll do that. And then Valerie will be writing a, an argument between a couple, and she thinks that as the little sister I'm more argumentative, she'll send it to me to say, can you heat this, heat this up? This up. <laughs> right, it could work spicy. And so I'll do that. So we're both, even in the scenes that we write individually, the other person's handprints all over because we're editing, we're adding. So it's very much a joint effort all the way through. Absolutely, yeah. It's great because it's like you're cooking a meal and you can ask somebody else to do the parts that you hate, like if you hate chopping. <laughs> yes, it's true. That's, the best. That's one of the best parts of it. it Absolutely. Is. I mean, I have I read a sentence the other day on the um, book we're working on now, and the, the first part of the sentence was mine and the second part was Lynn's, and I thought, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> um, I mean, it even reaches a place where I, I'll read a paragraph and think, wow, that's that's really great, Lynn, that was, you know, and then she'll say, you know, you wrote that, or vice versa, but we even forget who's written one. That's really, that's amazing. Um, I mean, to make a culturally insensitive, insensitive connection, I mean, to me, it sounds a lot like, you know, the controversy over the movie Split, which was about multiple personality disorder, and apparently they didn't do it very well, I haven't seen it yet. But, you know, it almost sounds as if you've got like, different personalities emerging and creating this book, and somehow it all works together. Well, I someone hear. asked us at one of the things the other day, now, what is the persona of Liz Constantine? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're like, oh, my gosh, that's a little scary. We're hoping she's not going to come in and take over. <laughs> That'll be the next episode. <laughs> so, Kate, Kate White, I feel like you in some ways have the antithesis of this situation with the Sisters Constantine because there's a dualism in your work as well, but it's not the dualism of two authors, and instead what it is is that you write the Bailey Wagon series, but you also write very compelling standalone psychological thrillers. And... Switching back and forth seems to me like you also would have to marry a couple of processes. So tell us a little bit. I admit that I have read every single standalone. I love the standalone. And I've never been a series gal. I just don't. I mean, I I read Bailey and I, you know, am glad to be able to be caught up with this new one. And I'm especially interested in female friendship books. But the standalones have so many psychological, you know, so much psychological nuance and it interests me that you're able to delve so deeply in those and then come back and write an ongoing series. And I don't know, can you tell us a little bit about your last one, The Secrets You Keep, and also about marrying both those hats? Yeah, thank you, Jenny. Well, I guess with Bailey, I know the character so well, and there are parts of her that are definitely like me to some degree, like the sort of, narky sense of humor at times so that that's that's something that close friends of mine would go oh, that's definitely me so it's in some ways once I 
developed her for the first book, I had a real sense of who she was, and certainly as each book went on and she, her friendships and her personal romantic relationships evolved, I had to think about how she's growing, and as I said a minute ago, particularly with her jumping two and a half years in, in this book, in age, because a lot happens at that point in your life in your mid-30s. I didn't realize how hard it was going to be with a standalone, that mm-hmm. you have to start from scratch with each time you do it with a whole new character, and you don't want people to think you're writing the, the same characters again and again. What I generally do is try to find maybe some little part of myself that maybe I could start to work with, even though it's a tiny part. And so with the one in March, The Secrets You Keep, that's a standalone about a woman who begins to worry that her new husband of just a year is not who she thinks he is. And there's a murder in the town of someone, a woman who caters a dinner party of theirs. And it really scares her because there are little things that begin to happen that make her think the husband might have known the woman better than he he let on. So with with that character, I don't feel she's me, but she is is a book author, which is something I hadn't really done to a big degree with a character before. And so mm-hmm. I thought, I'll just sort of tap into the part of me that works from the desk at home, and it can be a little isolating, and just See if I could go from there. And with each of the standalones, I've had to do start with just some little nugget and try to blow it out, and it is tricky. You just don't want all your standalones to have the same woman appearing <laughs> in them. Right. Yeah. Right. So, right. And, in fact, with the Bailey books, I, I did a contract to do a couple more, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to stick to Bailey for a while. And then the other night I was just sitting there and I thought, oh, my gosh, I have this idea for a standalone that they're going to ship me, but I'm going to try to write it at the same time. So oh, wow. I guess, uh, but, but what I do find is that writing a series and then taking a break, you feel energized when you go to a standalone. It's just a fresh take and then vice versa. So even though it's been challenging on, on the one hand, it's actually, I felt, has helped me with both, to, to come at them with more of a freshness. Yeah, that makes sense. And in a way, you see, you know, insofar as you're using different narrative devices and a different skill set, you can sort of let one set rest while you go to the other. Right, uh, right. And and, and, and Bailey, because she's a pretty healthy, together person, Overall, though she's suffered some of the same moments of, of lack of confidence that that all of us do, mm. uh, maybe not Val and Lynn, but but she's pretty together. She's not a psychologically crippled woman like we see in a lot of right. great psychological thrillers these days. So the women in the standalones are a little bit more complex in terms of maybe something they've had to deal with in their lives. Mm-hmm. So yes, they're more damaged. Yeah. yeah. So it's uh, it, it helps to be able to come at one and, and look at it a little differently than than the series. Yeah, that makes sense. 
So we're here on Inside Thrill, and we're talking with Kate White, who's the author of the – this is the seventh Bailey Wagons mystery. Am I right? Have I kept up, Kate? Is that the right number? Yes, seven. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. Seventh, even if it kills her, and also author of Standalone, such as the recently released Secrets You Keep. And we're talking with Lynn and Val Constantine, who write as Liv Constantine, and their – Mutual debut novel, The Last Mrs. Parrish, is just out this past September. So I want to talk about marriage and I want to talk about family because in all three of the books we're talking about, The Secret You Keep, Even If It Kills Her, and The Last Mrs. Parrish, um, those kinds of relationships, you know, what I call sort of uh, suspense on the domestic front, feature very, very prominently. And so I'd like to talk, I'd like each of you to sort of say, a little something about how you deal with that in your book and, you know, whether those intimate relationships seem to you to provide, you know, great fodder for fiction. So, I don't know, Liv and Val can, uh, I mean, Lynn and Val can duke it out and decide who should take that question, and then we'll bounce back to Kate. Okay. Okay. Um, so, I guess I'll Lynn here again. So how we deal with the – yes, I think that the, the marriage relationship, anything inside the, the four walls of a family, provides uh, just numerous opportunities to really look at a lot of different issues. Think that, that, you know, primarily things are never what they appear on the outside. So you have seemingly perfect couple that look like they have everything going for them, and maybe they do and maybe they don't, but only those two people who, living in, who are living in that house know that. And I think it's easy to bring not just personal, hopefully not too much personal experience with some of these stories, but some personal experience into it, things that you've seen with with other people, and then a great deal of imagination to, to really wonder what, what is happening and, and make it fun to, to switch things up and turn it around into a great psychological thriller. Anything to add? Hmm. No? I, I think the key is what you said at the very beginning, and that is uh, when you're looking in, the person looking in never really knows what's going on behind those four walls, and, it, and, and that fascinates us. I think the, the whole idea of well, what what secrets are behind there and what what is going on. That's all. I think all of us come to that same sort of curiosity and wonder about things that are, that are private and that we really shouldn't necessarily know about. So it's a great opportunity to have a character see something in one way that is completely wrong and, and then move through the story on that wrong assumption. Yeah. yeah. So, Kate, even if it kills her, you know, Bailey has to return to Jillian's childhood home and a lot of well, family stuff comes out. I mean, I feel like that forms a big part of the story. Um, can you talk a little bit about, I don't know, the same question, I guess, but also maybe also that interesting differential between the Bailey Wagon series and your standalones and whether sort of the intimate family stage changes depending on whether you're writing a Bailey Wagon novel or a standalone? Well, maybe I'll just backtrack because I, I love what Lynn and Bell were saying about how you can't, know from the outside what's going on in the inside. And I think one of the, what I wanted to do with secrets was also confront the notion that sometimes even when you're on the inside, you don't know what's going on. That's right. <laughs> and so in that case, it's a smart woman who's married a guy that she feels a real connection with, but she begins to realize, I don't really know for sure who he is. And I've been married now over 30 years. 
but I, I had one of those starter marriages, which back then was called, you know, not being too young enough to know better. <laughs> but so I feel I have a I have a good sense of my husband after 30 years, but I guess because of having had that early marriage that didn't work, there's always that lingering sense of you don't necessarily know everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Bailey, uh, she, like me, had a starter marriage. And her issue is more just feeling really gun-shy about making the commitment again. And partly because her first husband, and this is involved in my life, but he, he, she found out he was a compulsive gambler. And it was only when her jewelry box kind of went missing and the bookies were calling during the night. And this you only hear as she reflects back on it. Uh, that she realized that even as someone who was a really good crime reporter, she missed what was going on in her own marriage. So I guess mm. I, I am really intrigued with what Lynn and Val said, but also things that you might now not know right within your own family. And, mm-hmm. and even if it kills her, one of the things that begins to happen is as Bailey tries to help her friend Jillian figure out who might have really killed her family, she starts uncovering things that Jillian doesn't know about her mother, doesn't know about her father, and doesn't know about her sister. And so there's just that really scary thing of discovering who we, people in our lives who we think we know we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I would say in both books, that feeling of the rug being pulled out from under you because what were the relationships, you know, really like if, you did, if there was all this stuff that you were missing at the time. You know, one of the things that women who, when women tell me that they've discovered that their husbands were cheating and maybe it's been going on for a while, one of the things that's the worst isn't even so much, hey, I'm not going to be married to Todd anymore, but I didn't really like him that much anyway, maybe, but it's to realize <laughs> that for a year of your life, what you right. thought was your life wasn't really what your life was. That you've been right. living a lie without intending to live a lie. Right. There's the whole I could be fooled, and then there's just the simple you look back and you have to reinvent every, you know, reconceive every single day. Mm, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a huge theme in the last Mrs. Parish. All right. Let's, let's make a little shift, Kate and Lynn and Val, um, who write as Liz Constantine and Kate White. Let's make a little shift to sort of the business behind the books. And, you know, Kate, we'll start with you because you have a very interesting, we were talking about duality here on Inside Thrill tonight. Maybe that should be the title for the show. I did come up with the title. It's just escaping me now. Um, But we're talking about duality. And, Kate, in many ways you've had a dual career because you're a fiction author where you get to make everything up. And then you're also editor-in-chief of one of the most widely read, you know, women's magazines in history. So, you know, and that necessarily meant that you were not writing novels all along. I can't imagine how you would do both, although there might have been an overlap. But tell us a little bit about the duality of both those careers and, and how you made the shift into this part of the biz. Well, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a writer from the time I was really little, but it was before the Internet, and I thought, mm-hmm. I'll write plays, I'll write for newspapers, I'll, write, I'll be a magazine writer, I'll be a book author. And I didn't know that you sort of have to pick a lane in order to, <laughs> to do it. And sometimes you can have a couple lanes, but you can't have all the lanes. And it wasn't until I was in, kind of in college that I began to understand, look, you're going to have to pick. And then I wondered, 
free contest Glamour Magazine had, and part of the prize was that you could have the opportunity to apply for a job there. And my lane kind of got picked for me. But somewhere along the line, when I was the editor-in-chief of Red Book, I really began to feel that I'd love to go back to explore one of those other lanes, and I always wanted to write murder mysteries. So I wrote four chapters of one, and I was so excited about it. And then I got a call one Sunday to come in and see my boss, and my, my legs kind of buckled up from underneath me when my boss called on a Sunday. And I drove across three states. I was out in Pennsylvania with my family and drove and arrived, and to my shock, they said, we want you to take over Cosmo. Wow. So for me, you know, when I went home that night, my husband, I burst in the door, and I'm like, you're not going to leave this. I'm the new editor of Cosmo. And he gets his <laughs> grin on his face, like, and he goes, wait, I'm going to bed tonight with the editor of Cosmo? <laughs> 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 I always say, it's like, he, he thought I'd been handed the Kama Sutra and told, learn all about the positions now and tomorrow morning. But, <laughs> oh, I'm never going to get the mystery. But then, uh, over about five months later, over Christmas, I got out the four chapters, and I had not remembered this, but the nanny who died was found on a copy of Cosmo, so I took that kind of as a sign. Oh. And while I was at Cosmo, I wrote the first eight books. And oh, it was oh hard. It was shit. But I, it, in some ways, you know, now they call it a side hustle, but for me it was a little bit like, I'm getting a plan B because in that business it was easy to get fired. I ended up leaving on my own uh, terms saying, hey, thank you, but I'm, I'm done and leaving right. on great terms. But that was, you know, not necessarily in the cars. Uh, I had no guarantee of that. So part of why I did it was to change lanes and feel I was doing something that I wanted to do but had put aside, but also as a bit of self-protection. Hmm. To have a, yeah, to have a companion. What do you attribute your success in, yeah, what I've always heard is kind of a chew you up and spit you out, you know, part of the business. I mean, I, I think of publishing, book publishing is actually, relatively speaking, kind in terms of major media, but what do you attribute your success, Kate, at Cosmo to and being able to read on your own terms, as you said? Well, I think, and I'd love to hear what Lynn and Val saw in this, but I think, uh, because just from the perspective in the book publishing world, a lot of my success, I would totally say, I did a ton of research. I knew everything about the Cosmo Reader. I, I mm -hmm. just, I read every single email, every tweet. I did focus groups. I hired somebody who was an expert in Gen Y and Gen X. Now, mm -hmm. I knew how to write those cover lines, like Matthew's Moves So Hot as High School Golden Flames, but I based them really <laughs> on, <laughs> on understanding the reader. And research, I, I did more research than anyone in my company, all the other mm -hmm. editors in chief, probably combined. Mm -hmm. And I think it may, makes a difference. Then you get into publishing, and the shocker is they just don't do the same amount of research. Right. So uh, re research, I think, really helped. Plus, just the love of what I was doing and being able to really be good at knowing what celebs was on the cover, but even that was based on research. I, I studied it and began to discover that it wasn't how big their album did or whether their ass broke the internet or anything like that. It was the curiosity factor readers had about them. So I picked people based on that. So again, it's that research and 
I think all of us who've written books have discovered that book publishing doesn't have that as much. Right. But it's interesting. You are raising something very relevant to book publishing, which I was, you know, which is marketing. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Let's bounce back to Lynn and Val. And, you know, I said something about book publishing, uh, being a kinder part of the industry. Do you find that to be true? Have you, I mean, Lynn and Val, in a way, you, you've got a nice sort of newbie eye on this because this is your first book with your publisher. And how is your feeling about the industry? You know, how does it, sort of marry with Kate's or differ or? Well, for, for us, I mean, we feel incredibly blessed with where we, where we landed and ended up with Blessed Mrs. Parrish. It didn't happen overnight. I mean, it was a five-year journey from mm-hmm. really starting to get back. We had written, like I said, years ago, a book together called Circle Dance, which was not a thriller. It was just a women's fiction. And, um, then we both kind of moved on and went into separate directions with our careers. And about five years ago, or naturally, I guess it's seven years now, or whatever, from, we came, I came to Thriller Fest. And um, that's really what got me back into writing. I had this thriller that I had been working on for like eight years while I had been working in corporate marketing that I could never seem to finish. I came to Thriller Fest and I started meeting these authors who were younger than I was who had written 15 and 20 books. <laughs> Thinking, okay, you know, right? I'm just hanging my hat on this one book that I wrote 15 years ago, and so I knew that I needed to to get serious. And I talked to Valerie, and I told her about it, and I brought her the next year, and she wasn't sure because she, at the time, was was really more interested in writing women's fiction. We had tried a, another book that is our drawer manuscript right now that nothing happened with. Anyway, she came. We got super involved. We started networking, and we wrote the last Mrs. Parrish through connections with people that we had met when I published my, my other book. I self-published last year, The Very Fast Deception. So I can really give you a comparison of that experience, mm-hmm. I guess, to mm-hmm. then going with the traditional. And the reason that I published it on my own, I had gotten a professional, a great editor who, who now is the head of a different publishing company. So, I mean, I, I knew the book was ready, but it was just one of those books where it wasn't, it had a Christian theme, but it was too dark really for Christian fiction, and it was, mm. and in terms of a pure conspiracy thriller, it may, be, it may have been a little bit too religious, you know, for mainstream. So I went mm. ahead and published it on my own. Then Valerie and I, when we finished The Last Mrs. Parish, and we began to query it, when we were, it was at Thriller Fest, that was that representation two years ago, with Bernadette Baker Bauman of um, Victoria Sanders. And so she, she, we fell in love with her immediately. She called us after the conference was over and said, well, you know, we think the manuscript is ready. We're going to start putting it out there. And six days later, we had a preemptive offer from HarperCollins. So mm-hmm. they've been a, just a dream come true. I mean, we don't have anything. I've talked to other writers who say sometimes, you know, they have a difficult time with getting um, marketing and promotion. But, I mean, they have been phenomenal in terms of from, from the smallest thing, uh, like providing social media images or an image for us to maybe make a bookmark to the bigger things, like they, you know, they've got us in People Magazine, uh, the New York Post, USA Today. It's, it's like we get, a, I feel like we get an email every week with another fabulous thing. They're giving a, mm. a contest, uh, they, they're doing a sleep state, they just write to win a, a weekend in New York. Uh, <laughs> you know, one and one. And we love our editor. I mean, there's just everybody all along has just been so kind. Every, with the book cover, 
you know, people say to us, did you like your cover, you know, about authors? A lot of the booksellers ask us this because they talk to a lot of authors, and we say, you know, if they ask our input for everything. They don't, They never say, here, this is what it is. And so far, I mean, as soon as we saw the book cover, we fell in love with it, and that was fine. But they, they, it's just been... It's been a real love fest so far on both sides, right? It's just sort yeah. of been like a dream. It really has. Yeah. If, if you could pick the perfect publishing house and the perfect people to, um, in in every position along the way, it, that seems to have been what's happened. We've yeah. really been lucky. Yeah. yeah. Very lucky. Yeah. That is great. And I do just want to say one other thing that... Um, Cosmopolitan was absolutely my eyeball when I <laughs> <laughs> college, and uh, yeah, loved it. Yeah. Anyway. Well, yeah, so, yeah. Go ahead, Kate. No, no, no. no. We used to hear that a lot, that, that women thought it was revival, and that when they were 15, they sometimes read it with a flashlight under the cover. So. Yeah, yeah, I used to read some of those headlines. I right right no, oh, the agony column. I think the agony oh. column is what led me to become a psychotherapist. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, all the but I want to. Oh yeah, the quiz. The quiz. Yeah, yeah. The quizzes. They were the best. <laughs> but I want to actually something emerging from Cosmo, but also what you said, Kate, which pertains to kind of this side of the business that we're talking about now. So you talked, Kate, about the curiosity factor in in readers. And I'd like to know how you feel like that applies to your own publishing journey. And you wrote eight books while you were editor-in-chief. Um, I have to – mind is blown a little bit right now. Right. I had no idea that, that there were that many. But So you wrote both, but how would you – how do you feel about the differences between, you know, those articles and those headlines and the things you were bringing to Cosmo versus the marketing of the Bailey Wagon series and the marketing of your standalones? Do you feel there are – you know, what is your experience in the – publishing side of the industry been like when it comes to your book? Well, I, I have had great happiness with my publisher, too, and I think but there's been a change in the years I've done, and I feel like they're yeah. much more up to speed about using the inner, using digital to help mm-hmm. inform you, to to look at algorithms and say, hey, when you did this thing, there was a spike in sales, so mm-hmm. yet you're learning. So the research I said was missing compared to magazines. It, it's not fully there, but it's so much more there mm-hmm. than it was. And it's so helpful for you as an author to just get a sense of things. I mean, even just lately, I did, there's a Facebook ad campaign for even the Kilter. And so the the company is able to say what each image, the, the, the click-through rate for each image. And they're very similar images, but there's a huge difference in certain mm-hmm. ones having a significantly better click-through rate. So wow. that, if you have that kind of information as an author, it can be really insightful. I would love for companies to do A-B testing on color so that it's not just, hey, people in sales love this one, but we actually tested it and we saw it. Now, even with testing, Mm -hmm. it can be hard because one of the things we learned is that often people will not tell you what they're going to do. They think they they know what they're going to do. And people would say things to us like, oh, I would never buy a cover with her on it. 
But yeah, they would. They really would. <laughs> and they <laughs> might say they're yeah. sick of her. So I hope over time some of those tools become available where we get deeper into understanding our readers and that curiosity factor that you were talking about, Jenny. We, we really go deeper with it because it would be such a great tool for us. As, yeah. As yeah, and you're talking about having a real granularity of being able to look at what people are responding to. Um, it's interesting to know we all four of us are Thriller Fest attendees, and since there's a joint production of ITW and Suspense Magazine, all of whom are, you know, very kind of on the same thrillery page, there was a presentation at Thriller Fest this summer, and it was about AP Castings covers. But it right, actually right. never, but it never occurred to me that exactly what you're saying, Kate, that you know, people will say, I'll never read this book, but then, you know, maybe they stick it in a paper bag, like Fifty Shades of Grey, but they don't think you How do you find that? So, with research, you have to read it over time and realize when consumers are not telling you the full truth, even though they don't intend to lie. Right, right. Let's get back to the particular stories a little bit, and let's talk about Even If It Kills Her, which is Bailey Wagensoder's story of traveling back into her past in a moment of real regret, a time of real regret. Um, let's get back into the books a little bit and talk about what emotionally or what craft-wise was kind of the most difficult for you in writing it. And Lynn and Val, Liz Constantine, you can think a little bit while – because I think it's a tough question, but I think it's very illuminating for readers to sort of know what, what are those dilemma moments? What are those moments in the book that make you as an author sort of stop for a little while and take a, you know, take assessment? So, Kate, and even if it kills her, we'll focus on your, you know, the seventh in your series for now. What were the moments that really sort of you had to grapple with a lot? I think one of the hardest things for me was writing about a woman whose family had been murdered and there's this woman is uh, Jillian Lowe, who is a college friend of Bailey's, whose two siblings and parents were murdered her sophomore year in college. And I just have never known anyone who's had anything that horrible happen to her. And I also felt horrible for the young guy who was sent to prison, the neighbor, and he, uh, you find out very quickly in Chapter 1 that he's dead. He died in prison in the process of being exonerated. For, for him, even though I didn't really talk much about him, I tried to sort of channel some of that. And I, I've actually been a donor with the Innocence Project for a number of years, and I uh, have done a number of things with them. So I, I just try to think about all those guys who have been in prison for so many years for crimes they didn't commit. For Jillian, I... I actually remembered a case of a young woman whose family had been murdered when she was in college, and I actually found through the Internet some information about her, and she had really changed her life quite a bit. But it helped me to to see where she was and to get a sense of her to try to maybe figure out how I could channel that grief. The interesting thing is there was a woman who I know who I use as sort of physically the model for for Jillian, and I, I don't know why I just thought, you know what, I'm going to work with that. And then later, even after I started it, I discovered 
she came forward and admitted that something really, truly horrible happened to her. Mm. And I wondered if maybe <sighs> part of why I was drawn to her is that I saw a certain amount of grief in her that, that you, know, you try to tamp it down and get it under control, but, it, but it's there maybe. And even the way you, the muscles of your face just seem taut mm-hmm. at times. So right. I think that was the hardest thing because I've never had anything that horrible happen to me. Mm. Yeah, and having to go there in the book to just that level of grief and loss. That's really interesting. Do you want to say just a couple of words, Kate, about the Innocence Project for those who do not know what it is but might be very interested out there listening? Well, it's uh, two two guys, really, Barry Shack and Peter Newfeld, who are actually involved in the OJ Simpson case on the wrong side. They they are big DNA people, and what they their whole mission has been to make sure that DNA evidence is used correctly. And they started this program called the Innocence Project, and now there are others around the country. But what they do is they take cases of people who who they have judged there's a good chance that they were convicted incorrectly and wrongfully convicted and have been serving in prison. And you can't do this with everybody. When it's some sort of like a sexual assault, there's probably still evidence someplace that can be looked at and DNA testing can be done. And they've exonerated so many people this way heartbreaking mm-hmm. stories, and one of the things they've come to see mm-hmm. is that eyewitness testimony is often mm-hmm. wrong, and mm-hmm. also that confessions, people confess mm-hmm. all the time to things that they didn't do because they're, they've been up nine hours in an interview room. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's just remarkable what they've done. It's, it's so impressive. Yeah, it brings an objectivity mm-hmm. to it that was missing from the original case, which, you know, standard of evidence that... It's really amazing. So that's fascinating that that influenced you. Um, Liz Constantine, the sister of Constantine, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about, you know, the same thing, the moments in the last Mrs. Parrish, which is the story of two wives um, kind of caught mercilessly together. Uh, you know, what were the moments that were hard for you? What were the moments that you really had to wrangle with? I think we had, uh, probably with Amber, uh, the... Amber's not a very nice character. You you really know that from the beginning. She's a reliable narrator. So there isn't any question uh, about what her motives are and how she's going to achieve them. She has really no compunctions about um, using anything at her disposal to achieve her ends. No matter who it hurts, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, and so I think with a character like that, you you have to there there has to be some mitigating things so that it isn't just this completely black evil character who's just mean to be mean and evil to be evil sort of an I an I I go figure from um, who everyone says why is he why is I so so terrible and mm-hmm. um, yeah I mean. You know, there's no reason for him to be. So that was something mm. that I think we had to grapple with, that we didn't want her to just be completely black, although she's pretty close to it. 
the motivation. Well, the motivation. Yeah, yeah. The motivation yeah. behind behind it, and 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 also her perception of what she was seeing, which in some which is a lot of excess, and what looked to her and, and to the reader, as well as as people maybe not appreciating what they have, and you know the unfairness of the have and the have nots. And then the another thing though that we grappled with was we have other characters in the book who do things that are that are unsavory and they're how we're just kind of trying to figure out where we draw the line between how much to show and how much not to show and how to be true to the character without being gratuitous. Um and and ultimately what we ended up doing is just really asking what would the character say and do and going with that, even if it did, it made us at times uncomfortable having to write some of the scenes but the story called for it, and so we just made the decision that it's going to go in there and the chips are going to fall where they may, and we expect, you know, some people will like it and some people won't, but it's at least more important to us that, we're, that we were true to the characters in the story. Right. I mean, both books, even if it kills her by Kate White and The Last of Stars by Liv Constantine, really, I think, go to some dark places. And that's sort of the nature of thrillers and the nature of psychological fiction, especially these days, but... I'm always interested in the effects on the authors. Um, so thank you for well, answering that. So, well, it, it, just to tell you, a funny thing is, is that my pastor came to one of the signs and bought the book, and I told him, there's some parts that are a little, you know, racy, and he said, you know, everything's in the Bible, plus I've been a Navy pastor. And then he looked at Valerie and he said, and I'm just going to pretend that you wrote all of those books. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to have a scapegoat. Yeah. <laughs> so let's, let's use the last portion of Inside Thrill tonight to talk a little bit about a question that readers are always interested in which is how you write the books. And I mean the nuts and the bolts. I mean, what your schedule is like. What you get, when, when is your best writing time? When do you get up? What do you do to, you know, the, do the words come hard or easy? If they come hard, what do you do to get yourself through? Tell us a little bit about the process of uh, writing the book. Kate, you touched on this when you talked about, you know, the pace at which you, you wrote. And Lynn and Val, you talked about, you know, having sort of started in women's fiction and then coming back and having to send chapters back and forth to each other. But take us a little more into the nuts and bolts of your day. And why don't we talk, I guess, let's start with uh, Lynn and Val so you can sort of add on to the collaborative process, but each of your really individual processes of getting those words onto the screen. Sure. So for me, the best time is to write first thing in the morning. I grab my coffee and I go up to my office and shut the door. And typically, I don't set necessarily a time limit, but whatever word count that we have just decided, if we're working towards finishing a manuscript, then I, you know, we know exactly we're probably doing maybe 2,500. We try to do 2,500 words a day. That doesn't always happen. Probably five days a week, sometimes six. Um, I also still do social media consulting, so. I have to be, you know, once I start sort of shift into that other gear, then it's hard for me. I always get my writing done first because then I'm in the marketing mode and and I just can't necessarily go back and forth. So I have to make sure I don't go into Twitter or Facebook or anything before I start. And um, and then when we're, so that's when we're writing the draft. But when we get into um, the, the editing back and forth, then we can work for eight or ten hours. I mean, it's just we just work until we get it done depending on what the deadline is. And, and that will go through yeah. through the weekend, through yeah, work, oh, yeah. work, you know, Saturday, Sunday. I, and I, too, will, uh, write first thing in the morning. 
after, well, of course, after my coffee and breakfast, sometimes mm -hmm. I walk the dog, and, and, which is a great time for ideas, actually, for me, if I'm walking. Mm -hmm. uh, and then come back and write. Um, my biggest challenge, um, although I am finally overcoming it to a degree, but uh, for me the biggest challenge was uh, to not try to keep editing myself as I went along, you know, like fix the sentence, make the sentence perfect before I move on to the next sentence. And, and that can really mm. stop you and just and then stop the flow of ideas and creativity, and that's what it would do for me. I, so I don't know if that – I mean, partially might have been a way to not write, <laughs> uh, but it also was very – it was very stultifying for me. And Lynn kept saying to me, just write in really big letters at the top of it, first draft, and, <laughs> and get past it and just write. Um, so that's been a big help to, to try not to do that. Yeah, I think changing from that editorial hat to your just creative process hat can be a challenge for some writers. So, Kate, how about your process? Does it differ? Are you also a morning writer? And what kind of nuts and bolts can you share? Well, I have a, a few similarities definitely to Lynn and Val. And I'd love to talk about this, Jenny, because I started writing late. And I'm not sure if it was Lynn or Val who was talking about that you know, going to Thriller Fest and you've seen all these people who've done so many books. And what I guess my feeling was, I used to hate it when I would hear successful authors say things like, if you're not writing every day, it means you don't really want to be an author. And I think some of it is figuring out what makes writing doable and even perhaps at moments pleasurable for you. Mm -hmm. And I... It took me a while to realize I've got to write in the morning. I wrote my nonfiction books at night after my husband, who was anchoring a really early newscast, went to bed and the kids went to bed, and that was easy to do, but I can't write fiction at night. There's nothing mm -hmm. comes out. So I finally realized, hey, you're going to have to burn the candle at both ends, baby. <laughs> so I started writing in the morning and found if I got up early, it just was so much easier, and that for me, Certain things like having a lot of quiet, having a, a very empty, flat space to write on instead of a roll-top desk, which I had for a few years. All those things kind of I thought of as a writer's cocktail. You have to figure out what makes it possible for you. And once I did that, it was so much easier. And I, I also roughly plotted out. I always know who did it, why they did it. But then I do some chapters a few at a time, and sometimes I'm surprised, like, when I discover somebody's going to die who I didn't think of was going to die. Oh, no. I know. Someone down. I didn't know that. And New character walks onto the page. Right. Yeah, right. Right, exactly. And, and so I really related to that. But I think most importantly is figure out the things that, that make you want to write. I, I heard when... Uh, Lisa Gardner once say that she always had a scented candle when she was writing it. I stole that idea from her. But, again, mm -hmm. one more little thing that makes sitting at the desk oh, less onerous than times where it can be onerous. Yes. Well, I think it's great, your description of the writer's cocktail and figuring out what what are the ingredients, you know, that go into you, your cocktail. What kind of, 
you know, liquor do you like? Is there juice? Is there sweet cocktail? Do you need to sort of bribe yourself with chocolate? And, you know, and yes, morning or night. And it's amazing to me, I mean, that you all three agree, and I'm actually the same in this, that the creative process at night, you know, I can do anything at any time that has to get done except for that very creative first draft. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. almost like there there is something that, you know, bubbles out in the freshness of the day that, you know, the poor dog gets neglected well, but you, you yeah. guys can do the best draft. Well, I mean, this has been fascinating. We're talking on Inside Thrill with Kate White, who's the author of the latest and seventh Bailey Wiggins novel, Even If It Kills Her, and also a standalone release just this past uh, March, Secrets You Keep, and Liv Constantine, who is the sister of Constantine, whose book, The Last Mrs. Parish, is fresh out from Harper. I said it was published in um, September, but I think it actually came out in October. Is that right? October, right. Yeah, yeah October. Yep. So, listeners, tonight you can have some fantastic reads. Go out and get them. I love getting your tweets and your Facebook posts and your emails and anybody who um, contacts me this way in the next couple of weeks as the show is being aired, you will be entered for a chance to win one of each release. And I thank you, Kate and Lynn and Val, for being on Inside the Road tonight. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wonderful. Terrific. Next, great to next meet you. We have to interview you so we can hear more about your process. <laughs> That's right. You're right. Well, certainly at the very latest, I hope we all come together, and I hope many of our listening audience also meets up with us at Thriller Fest this summer. Um, yes, I would love to catch up with, with all of you, with Kate and Lynn and Val. And congratulations, ladies. You're obviously having a wonderful year with fantastic new books. And thank you all for listening. We love having Inside Thrill be a part of your lives. Thank you so Good much. Night, Good night, everybody. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.